There were more than 164,000 deaths due to adverse effects of prescription drugs in 2017. That's an average of 450 deaths per day. I just want you to think about that for a second. Deaths due to the medication that was anticipated to cure. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Jacobs, author of Do You Really Need That Pill? Dr. Jacobs is a family practice physician specializing in holistic medicine and a clinical assistant professor in epidemiology at the University of Washington School of Public Health and Community Medicine in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Jacobs, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Jacobs, you are very clear that there are medications and procedures in today's world that are absolutely life-saving. But on the other hand, you also point to some of the dangers of the pills that we take, which is really the focus of do you really need that pill? You know, in some circles, a doctor saying that perhaps a patient doesn't need to take a pill, that might almost be seen as sacrilegious. Yes, unfortunately, most doctors expect that patients want pills when they visit them, and patients might be disappointed if they leave the doctor's office without a pill. But uh, it's much easier for people to do other lifestyle modification things like diet, exercise, stress, relaxation exercises, than taking pills. When we talk about pills, I think the general assumption that we don't really think about much, but I think we generally assume that every pill has got an adverse side effect and things over the counter, maybe not so much. Is that a fair assumption? Well, in general, that's true, but over-the-counter medications can be dangerous as well. For example, medications like aspirin and ibuprofen can cause up to 16,000 deaths every year. 40% of acute liver failure cases are due to overdoses of acetaminophen, which is also known as Tylenol. So any drug that you take, anything that you put into your body, if you take too much of it, can cause a problem. You cite a 10-year study, um, which I found disturbing and fascinating all at the same time. It was a 10-year study of more than 3,000 people aged 65 and older. Can you talk about that study? Uh, Well, I'm not exactly sure which one you're talking about. Can you give me a little bit more of a clue? This is the one um, where they were looking at the incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's uh, compared to non-users of anticholinergic drugs. Yes, yes. Anticholinergic drugs are ones that are very commonly taken, and most people don't understand the dangers of them. The um, many common drugs like antihistamines, painkillers, many antidepressants are anticholinergic. And what they do is they inhibit a chemical, acetylcholine, in the brain that's important in transmitting information from one cell to another. 
But they did find in this 10-year study that people who were taking a large number of doses of these anticholinergic drugs were having one and a half times the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. The uh, incidence went up dramatically the more of these anticholinergic drugs that someone was taking. So antihistamines like Benadryl, Dimetap, Dramamine, antidepressants, even drugs for urinary incontinence, which are becoming more and more common, are also anticholinergic. So it's important that people be aware of this and make sure that they not take these drugs, or if they do, take only one or two of them. One of the things that was so troubling to me about this particular study is the impact of antidepressants over time. As you know, I know that you know that when people are put on antidepressants, first of all, you're you're taking it for about a month or so before you're supposed to experience any real benefit from it. And then the thought is that you're going to be taking it for at least six months to a year, if not longer, if not forever. So when I think about that sort of common practice with respect to antidepressants and what you're saying is the negative effects, I'm really troubled. Yes, and the other thing to know about antidepressants is some of the literature shows that only maybe one out of seven people are helped by them. These are people with mild to moderate depression. People with major depression often do benefit from antidepressants, but oftentimes it takes several different tries with different antidepressants to find one that helps someone. And studies have shown that something like exercise, for example, or cognitive behavioral therapy are just as effective in treating depression without the long-term side effects. Again, there's, you know, there. I think about the insurance companies um, who, I'm not sure now, I mean, I don't take insurance anymore, but there was a time when I certainly did. And one of the primary assumptions was that if you had a a patient who was depressed, you were going to refer them for medication. And there was almost a pushback if you didn't. Um, So what's your thought about that? This is a real problem with our reimbursement system. It's true for Medicare as well as private insurance, and that is they will pay for medication. They will pay for visits to psychiatrists to prescribe medication, but they don't pay for lifestyle change recommendations. They don't pay for long-term psychotherapy. They don't pay for going to learn yoga or tai chi or something like that that will help you relax and help your depression. And even psychiatrists these days can earn more money by seeing people for a 15 or 20-minute medication visit than to spend an hour or an hour and a half doing psychotherapy. So we really need to change the insurance reimbursement system in order to help people become more less reliant on drugs and more reliant on helping themselves with positive lifestyle changes. What about dietary supplements? Uh, more and more uh, these days, first of all, you, you see them advertised everywhere, and the sense is that they're safe and they're not really medication, so you can take whatever. 
Is that true? Some dietary supplements, I think, are valuable. For example, vitamin D in someone who lives in a high latitude and doesn't get a lot of sunlight. But in general, I recommend that people get most of the vitamin and minerals that they need from their food. Eating a healthy diet with plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, uh, beans, lentils. The Mediterranean diet itself has been shown to be very effective in treating a lot of chronic diseases. It's much better than taking a number of different dietary supplements because we don't really know, for example, whether or not taking them separately in pill form is the same as eating them in food that it was originally meant to help our bodies function correctly. I'm going to ask you to describe for us a prescribing cascade. Uh, Your 94-year-old uncle was a victim of a prescribing cascade. Tell us what happened. Yes, yes. My 94-year-old uncle, who was very healthy in my opinion, he walked every day, we spoke on the phone, and he joked with me about baseball teams, went to his internist and was given a test actually to subtract sevens from 100. And apparently he didn't do very well on this because his doctor decided that he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease and prescribed a drug to slow down the process. Shortly afterwards. Dr. Jacobs, let me interrupt you. Um, We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like for you to continue and and tell us the the range of things that your uncle experienced. Okay, thank you. Sure. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer continuing the conversation with Dr. Jennifer Jacobs, who is author of Do You Really Need That Pill? And the the book focuses on um, how to avoid side effects, interactions, and other dangers of over-medication. Dr. Jacobs, continue, if you would, telling us about your 94-year-old uncle. Couldn't take seven from 100, and therefore, What? Therefore, his doctor thought he was starting to have Alzheimer's disease, prescribed a new drug, and shortly afterwards, my uncle started having incontinence, trouble holding his urine, which had never been a problem before. So the doctor then prescribed another drug for this, at which point my uncle started becoming very confused, belligerent, and then the doctor wanted to put him on an antipsychotic thinking that the Alzheimer's was rapidly progressive. My cousin, his daughter, called me in a panic and said, what's going on? He's never been like this before. So I looked up the side effects of the drugs he was taking, and it turns out the drug for Alzheimer's caused him to become incontinent. The incontinence drug caused him to have mental confusion. 
So this is an example of what we call a prescribing cascade, where one drug causes a side effect that's thought to be a new illness, a new drug is prescribed for that, which then causes more side effects, which is thought to be another new illness, and it goes on and on like a vicious cycle. It, it, it really is disturbing. What can we do about this? Just the layperson, what, if anything, can that person do? Well, the important thing for people to do, first of all, is to make a list of all the drugs that they've been prescribed and that they're taking, and then look them up on the Internet. There's several good websites, for example, drugs.com, that lists these possible side effects, the possible interactions, and if you find something that disturbs you that looks like it might be a problem for yourself, then go to your doctor and say, look, I'm concerned about this. If you have any kind of research studies or information from my book that you can take with you, and perhaps the doctor will be open to talking to you and working with you about this problem. And if for some reason the doctor is not open to that, what do you recommend? Find another doctor. Sounds reasonable. I mean, most, (laughs) most doctors expect that patients want pills, want prescriptions, and you might be surprised that the doctor is, you know, pleasantly surprised to find someone who doesn't want to take medication and might be willing to work with you. But it's important also to bring this up at the beginning of your medical visit because doctors are usually rushed, and if you bring it up at the end of your visit, uh, they might just run out of the room without talking to you about it. So you you want to be perhaps thoughtful about what information you want to share with the doctor, maybe even have a list um, that you keep with you. Absolutely. Everyone should have a list of all their medications that they're taking. Often people see more than one specialist, and it's important that each specialist knows what the other ones are prescribing because it can be a big problem if one drug is prescribed that doesn't interact well with another. And that would be called a drug-drug interaction? Correct, yes, yes. Tell us about serotonin syndrome. You say that 7,000 people develop it each year, uh, but surveys have shown that only 85, that 85% of physicians never heard of it. That's really scary. I know. I came across this statistic about the number of doctors who don't know about it, and I was very surprised because there are a number of common medications similar to anticholinergics that um, contain syndrome, sorry, contain serotonin. Again, antidepressants, uh, migraine medications, over-the-counter cough syrup. Uh, These drugs, when given alone, usually are not a problem, but when given in combination with each other can cause serotonin, serotonin syndrome, which causes nausea, vomiting, rapid heartbeat, diarrhea, even hallucinations, and there have been some reported deaths from this. So again, it's important that people understand that taking one medication might be fine, but combining them can sometimes be dangerous. Let's go back and talk about the drugs that can 
result in depression. Just say more about that. I mean, there's some of the drugs um, that you've identified that I'm not sure people think about in terms of it contributing to an experience of depression. Yes, it's interesting study that just came out uh, that listed all of the different drugs that can cause depression. And the study said that one-third of U.S. adults were taking one of these medications that can cause depression. So medications for acne, such as Accutane, seizure seizure medications, anxiety drugs like Valium or Xanax, even blood pressure drugs, beta blockers like Lopressor, Tenormin, calcium channel blockers, which are also given for uh, high blood pressure, pain medicine, statins, of course, one of the most commonly given drugs. All of these have been found that to have depression as a side effect. And yet, again, one-third of all the people in the United States, adults, take one or more of these drugs. So we wonder about the, the incidence of depression and how much of it is really drug-related. Well, again, it, it's it's a stare, it's a scary statistic. Um, it's something. It's a statistic that really, hopefully, causes one to absolutely pause uh, and pay attention to what they're taking and why they're taking it. Dr. Jacobs, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Thank you. What is the Beers List? The Beers List is a compilation of drugs that are contraindicated to be given to people age 65 and older. It's a list that was started, I believe, back in the 90s, and it's a very good guideline for people and doctors to use to determine what is safe and what is not safe to be given to uh, seniors, people over age 65. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's not often adhered to, but it does contain many common medications that uh, we've already talked about. The best thing that people can do is to try not to take medication unless they really need it. Uh, It was first Tranquilizers such as Ativan, Valium, and Xanax have been reported to increase the incidence of Alzheimer's disease by as much as 50%. These are benzodiazepines that are often given to help with sleep. And they're on the beers list, but yet they are given quite frequently to elderly people to help them sleep. And they've been associated, for example, with auto accidents, with daytime sleepiness, uh, and they can become very uh, dependent. People can become very dependent on them and have trouble getting off them. So that would be one thing people could do is look at the beers list, which is available online, and see if they're taking anything that's on that. And would you spell beers for us? Yes, it's B-E-E-R-S. 
And it sounds like you're saying this is a very credible list. Are there any particular sites that you would recommend folks look at, or should they just do a search for it? I think if they search for it, they'll find it. The list is the same no matter which website you find it on. Can I assume that physicians would routinely have a copy of this in their offices? I'm not sure you could assume that. Hmm. No, I'm not sure you could assume that because so many elderly people are taking these drugs. Okay. And therefore, I wonder if, if doctors are always being careful about it. You um, also point out that the pharmaceutical industry has found a way to develop new illnesses as a way to sell more pills. Can you give us a brief example? Yes, that's something that was very entertaining for me. For example, urinary frequency has now become a illness. Uh, premenstrual syndrome has now become an illness. Social anxiety, which I'm sure all of us experience at one time or another, has become a new illness. And what the drug companies do often is they start these, quote, nonprofit, unquote, organizations wow. like uh, the Friends of Social Anxiety. They're called AstroTurf instead of grassroots. They're fake grassroots organizations to raise public awareness about the uh, particular new illness they're creating. And then after they've had a lot of public service announcements about this supposed illness, then they introduce a new drug to treat this illness. Sometimes it's just a drug that's already been out there, but they're finding a new way to sell it. For example, for social anxiety, uh, they use Paxil, which is an antidepressant. So uh, it's really a creative way they have of creating new consumers for their products. AstroTurf organizations, that's, that's a new one on me. <laughs> but, you know, as you describe it, clearly it makes sense. We, we're living in a time where, as we've said before, the idea that you can pop a pill and it's like magic and then you're all cured and fine and dandy, I mean, there, there's so much that's driving that market, and that's really what it is, is a market. Yes, the drug companies spend $14 million a day on direct-to-consumer advertising, mostly on television. And this is $14 million a day which adds up to several billion a year, the United States and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that allow this, that allow direct-to-consumer advertising. So we are bombarded every day with more and more drug ads. Uh, the pharmaceutical company also pays almost half a billion dollars each year to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, as users' fees which helps keep the FDA afloat. So the FDA really has a uh, reason to be nice and to help the drug companies. Uh, they also spend $150 million a year lobbying Congress. So it's a huge vehemence that uh, we're up against in terms of trying to educate people about taking fewer drugs. One of the things that you recommend uh, is that a patient 
asked their doctor to write the specific reason for each medication on the prescription, which means then the pharmacist will write it on the label, which I think, you know, in the scheme of things, is a very simple thing to ask, but so enormously helpful and potentially life-saving. Yes, it is. And the pharmacist also can be a very important part of the healthcare team because pharmacists understand a lot about drug interactions and side effects. And if people go to the same pharmacy and see the same pharmacist for all their drugs, the pharmacist can help them determine if there could be a problem. Again, you know, in some ways it can leave one speechless and overwhelmed, but you throughout um, do you really need a pill, you offer specific concrete suggestions that people uh, can engage in in order to help themselves uh, to be more aware of actually what it is they're taking and why, and the potential side effects, which, as we've said before, we too often don't pay that much attention to. I just want to underscore a couple of more critically important points that you've made. Um, One is that mistakes can be made when prescriptions are filled, and it's important to check when you pick up your prescription that what you're expecting to receive is what you actually receive. There are many drugs that have similar names, and sometimes the pharmacy can be confused, especially in the old days when doctors would write prescriptions by hand and their handwriting was so bad. But I think now most of it is done over the phone or by computer, by email, so that's less of a problem. But yes, it's important that people make sure they are getting the right drugs. And another point you make is that it's important to understand when you should take your prescription and how you should take it. Can you just speak about that for a moment? Of course. It's very difficult when you're taking four or five different medications to have them all at the right time and so forth. So uh, keeping track of that is important. But the other thing is, is that people often don't need all these medications. Many medications that are given for acid reflux, for high cholesterol, for high blood pressure, aren't necessary because people really don't always have the indications for these drugs and it's easier for doctors to prescribe them than to talk to people about the lifestyle changes they can make to help uh, with the problem they're faced with. One of the sections of Do You Really Need That Pill speaks to uh, seven medical conditions that you've identified uh, in which you say uh, you may not need the drugs that are routinely being prescribed. And just in the interest of time, I'm going to quickly go through the list. Um, High cholesterol and cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, acid reflux disease, depression, chronic pain, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. It's extraordinary for for me at least to have learned that from your perspective these are conditions that you hear about all day every day and you're saying you know these are serious conditions but you might be able to do without some of the drugs you're on. Exercising for about 30 minutes three times a week I think is the minimum that people should look for and by exercise, even just walking 
for 30 minutes around the neighborhood in a park outside is very beneficial. 30 minutes three times a day, three times a week can have a lot of beneficial results. And this is what the uh, U.S. Task Force on Exercise recommends. Of course, more exercise is better. Aerobic exercise, of course, is good, but also strength training, lifting weights, or using elastic bands, uh, and stretching exercises like yoga, tai chi, that sort of thing. All three types of exercises are recommended to help people achieve optimum health. Dr. Jacobs, there's so much more um, information that you have um, offered us, and do you really need that pill? Is there a website people can go to for more information? Yes, my website is jenniferjacobsmd.com, www.jenniferjacobsmd.com, and I've written uh, little essays about different subjects that also appear in my book. So I hope people will go there and learn more about how they can help themselves become more healthy. And thank you for having me. And thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service and is not intended to replace any work you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk. So do email me at pamela at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Be sure to go to the mindtalk.org homepage and sign up for our weekly giveaway. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. 